There is something to be said, as the Lordship advocates do and Calvinists do, that your works should demonstrate your belief and what you believe. I mean, everybody understands that in any type of life, how yeah. you live demonstrates what you believe, right? But if you put too much emphasis on those works, if I'm looking at my works and I'm not looking at Christ, I'm going to start doubting my salvation because there's nothing, even my best works are filthy rags, right? Yeah. However, the assurance of faith, I think, according to John, is that am I continuing to believe? Am I genuinely continue in this moment, right now, believing in Jesus Christ? Mm. If I am, the assurance should flow from that. Welcome to Pastor Scholar, Bridging the Gap, examining how academia and the church influence each other. I'm Chris Miller, your moderator. Joining me as always is Dr. Corey Marsh, professor of New Testament at Southern California Seminary, and Pastor Ryan Day of Revolve Bible Church. And our topic is today is, how easy is it to be saved? It is impossible with man. Matthew 19, Jesus said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, in that discourse, he goes on to say uh, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is to get a, a camel through the eye of a needle, which is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, specifically as it relates to salvation. Um, without the divine work of God in the heart, making the gospel effectual to the listener, it is impossible to be saved. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. Um, Professor Marsh? Absolutely. Uh, from a divine side regarding man, it's impossible. And yet from the human side, it is incredibly easy because we're called to believe, to trust in Christ, not to do all these things to crawl your way up the Vatican steps or to lug a bunch of, you know, uh, of, of whatever rocks one from here to there to prove yourself um, a lot of systems do this. I've seen systems that actually, or different religions and different takes, even on Christianity, believe it or not, where they're actually literally crucifying themselves on crosses. It's not that. It is impossible in the sense where you have to be called to be able to believe, and then God give the grace to be able to believe, and yet on the, the there's another sense that says it's incredibly, uh, they, in Philippians, or Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Call on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? To believe in Christ, and you will be saved. It's that simple. But as Ryan said, come to find out, it's actually an impossibility without God's enablement. Yeah. It's funny, when Corey says that, when I was a youth pastor, uh, at a camp that I was at, there was a guest speaker that we had brought in, and a girl came up to me after the guest speaker was done, and he preached the gospel. And the girl came up to me, and she looked at me. I'll never forget it. And she said, it can't be that easy. Hmm. And she had this workspace mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. Uh, and Professor Marsh, uh, just going to this uh, idea of, well, specifically regarding um, what's called free grace theology. Can mm. you speak to what free grace theology is and the views of Charles Ryrie and spe specifically Anne St. Hodges? Mm. Yeah, that's a hotbed issue within um, a certain sect within uh, dispensationalism. This is really an in-house dispensational belief uh, uh, debate because the main proponents generally, at least the earlier ones, were dispensationalists. Uh, to boil it down as quickly as possible, in the mid-80s, Zane Hodges, a professor at Dallas Seminary, very respected uh, New Testament exegete, he had wrote a book called Absolutely Free, I believe it was called. And the idea of his book was uh, works do not play any aspect in salvation, which we would agree with, but they don't prove you're a Christian either. What makes someone a Christian is simple belief. You're absolutely free in that sense, where it's just a mental assent is what it got boiled down to. Um, in fact, not even repentance was required now, uh, uh, according to this perspective, uh, for salvation, because repentance is sort of, a, it could be classified a work. They, will appeal, they would appeal, as Zane Hodges did, um, to the Gospel of John more than any other book in the Bible, other than 1 Corinthians, and I'll give a reason why. But in the Gospel of John, it's the one gospel of the four accounts we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that gives an explicit theological purpose for why it was written. And that theological purpose is in, is in John 20, verse 31. And John says, uh, and it's toward the end of the gospel account, that these things were written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. Very simple. It's wonderful. And that's it. 
Nowhere does it says that you must repent and believe, right? It's just believe. In fact, they're going to appeal to the, 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 the exegetical fact that in John's gospel, the word repentance doesn't come up at all. 98 times the word pistuo, the verb, uh, which is for believe, for to trust, is 98 times in the gospel of John, never once do you see metanoia. The idea or metanao, the, the, the verb to repent. So they're going to pinpoint because John is the one gospel that gives an explicit purpose why it was written and it was to for salvation and it's only to believe. Therefore, we believe, have a mental ascent of Christ, and that is it, regardless of how your life doesn't need to change. And when they go to that aspect, your life doesn't need to change, they're going to appeal to 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the Corinthian saints. And it's, if anybody knows that church at Corinth, they had all kinds of sin. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. There was incest in the church. I mean, there was all kinds of craziness happening within this church, and yet they were still called Saints Hagios, which was uh, a believer. And so they would, St. Hodges would make this case. He was more of an extreme view that to be saved, it is a simple belief in Christ, and works do not play in any aspect of it. Okay, you can fall away. You can even, it got so extreme is that you can go to the point of denying Christ and you're still saved for that initial belief in Christ would be an extreme view. This sparked a whole debate where John MacArthur now wrote a book, which is one of his most famous books, um, The Gospel According to, the, According to Jesus. And he was responding to Zane Hodges. And his idea was Jesus cannot simply just be Savior by believing him he's your Savior. More times than not, he's called Lord. And if Jesus is going to be your Lord, that demands obedience, right? That demands a repentant idea. He is now not merely my Savior. He is Lord and Savior. And so out of that camp came this idea of lordship salvation, that to be saved, you have to understand Jesus as Lord and commit your entire life to him, which the free grace side said, that's, and that's way too much to put on anybody. The simple idea was to believe in Christ. Well, MacArthur and Lordship Advocates are going to place more of an emphasis on obedience and, and works from a Calvinistic, more of a Calvinistic point of view, works proves that you were a believer. Charles Ryrie, since you brought him up, he, he sort of took a more mediating position. It's a wonderful book he has, um, So Great Salvation. He actually, he, he, he's trying to be a little bit, he's not as extreme as Zane Hodges and not so much Lordship at all with, 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 with MacArthur, but he, he tried to be a via media. And showing that it is, it is unrealistic to say that for someone to become a believer, you have to put every, all of their aspect, their entire life has to change in order to believe in Christ. And that Christ is Lord of every aspect of someone's life. No one can fulfill that. To, so to say that, you're actually, this is the buzzword it gets used, you're front-loading the gospel. Because the gospel is very clear, to believe in Christ. Um, so he tried, to, he tried to nuance it a little bit, and he did a pretty good job of being a via media between these more extreme positions or... I don't know if we can call all of it all extreme because there's some good. I mean, I'm I'm boiling it down very and synthesizing. There's going to be some out there and go, hey, that's not exactly what. It, there's always going to be that, but that's basically the the over the overview of it. Their idea, the free grace side, uh, the way I see it, the way I understand it is what's what's critical in this debate is the role of repentance. Yes. Okay. Do we repent and believe as this a two step process? Because to the free gracers, and they have a very strong point with this, a lot of Calvinistic, a lot of even lordship, if we put it that way, advocates seem to suggest that, that we repent and believe. They'll describe it that way and make it sound like it's a two-step process. However, the lordship advocates are going to say, no, we're not saying there's two different steps. It is a repentant belief, right? Repent hyphen belief, two sides of the same coin. You don't see anybody believing without also repenting. Right, their life has changed. They have now; they're not no longer following false gods. They're no longer following just themselves. They're following Christ. So it's a repentant belief. So repentance from the lordship side is going to say repentance is not a human work. That itself is an act of grace. Nobody can repent without God giving them that ability to regenerate them, to open their eyes, to to uh, to to give them eyes of faith. Sometimes it's called that way to be able to see Christ for who He is and to trust in Him. That is a repentant belief, and their life is going to show for a long period of time that they truly are obeying Christ as Lord and Savior. The free grace guys are going to say, and and I'm probably like I said, I'm I'm, I'm swiping both of these in big camps, and there's a lot of nuances here. They're going to say it doesn't change the fact that we are called to believe in Christ. They're going to put a lot of stock on, on John's gospel, who never uses the word repentance. If we're going to classify John's gospel as the gospel of salvation, 
you would think that John would have said that these were written so that you repent and you believe, but he doesn't say that. So they're going to put a lot of their argument just on John's gospel alone. But to their point, they're going to say a lot of sloppy, loose language, and some pastors and preachers are so big on describing coming to salvation as a repentance and belief, it gets described, it gets thought of as a as a two-step process, which it's not. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of mudslinging back and forth. Never do you see these guys on the same stage hammering this out. Never do you see them in the same book doing a, a, an article and a response to it, which is something we've, we were thinking about doing at SES Press to be able to publish something like that. That would be great. It, w- it would be, and this has been on the dock for a while, uh, the docket for a while to be able to do this in our publications. What you do see is separate conversations, separate societies. There's now a Free Grace Alliance and a Grace Evangelical Seminary uh, 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 Society, which is... Or I'm probably butchering the name. I can't think it off the top of my head. But these that are advocates for free grace, and they are pushing so hard against the what they call that lordship view, that in their perspective is you're front loading the gospel with works. You're putting works. You're putting too much an emphasis on works, and everybody's walking around as fruit inspectors because nobody thinks they're truly saved because they're not bearing the right type of fruit that the lordship people seem to suggest that you should be bearing. You know, so there are there are good and they have some good arguments there. Sometimes I've been in, I've been in. In churches where that's that's the very thing, nobody believes they're saved. And well, you know, it seems to be that's the climate of a lot of the people I was with. They don't believe they're saved because they're not bearing fruit what they expect to be bearing fruit if they're truly repentant. Realizing salvation is yeah, it's it's sanctification is a long process, you know. Um, so there, that's it, sort of in a nutshell. Probably said too much and didn't say the most uh, enough of the more important things, but that's my that's my general take on it. Did you have you wanted to? Um. No, I think that's good. <laughs> so given that, um, what is repentance? Uh, some have suggested, well, it's just a change of mind. And some have said, no, it's a turning from sin. So what specifically, how would you identify that? Well, I'll take that one. Sure. Um, repentance is not a work because it's granted by God. We're told that in 2 Timothy 2.25. Uh, we're set, we're told that in Acts eleven eighteen, I believe it is. Um, so repentance is not a work. When we see the command to repent and believe, particularly in the Gospels, it's con- connected. Those words, belief and repent, are connected with the conjunction or with a conjunction that makes those two words inseparable. So as Corey said, it's not a two step process. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't trust in Christ if you're unwilling to leave your sin behind. So uh, lordship, the lordship salvation was a term of derision that was the free gracers actually gave to those other guys, and it's a misnomer. Oftentimes when people hear, uh, I hold to lordship salvation myself, and they think that that means that you have to perfectly obey everything God has commanded to be saved. That's not the point. The point is, is that we do not divorce belief from repentance. Yes, we trust Jesus, but we also change. Um, The word itself, the Greek word for repent, it means to change your mind. But biblical theology, meaning our theology is coming from the Bible, as as we take all that the New Testament is saying about repentance, it includes not only a change of the mind, it includes uh, uh, volition. It includes emotion. Uh, it includes bearing fruit. Um, we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So when we're talking about repentance, it's, it's a total change of the person. Um, and it is something that is granted by God. It's something that is commanded when we come to Christ. And Professor Marsh, would you echo that? Yeah, um, I'm trying to find the reference, and it's, it's in one of the Thessalonian letters. Um, I think if I off the top of my head, because this was just as Ryan was talking, it, it hit me. And uh, it's in it's in I'll find <laughs> hear this later and go there it is in First Thessalonians. <laughs> it's in one of the it's one of the Thessalonian. Uh, well, we we, we can come back to it. If you yeah. uh, no, but the idea of uh, and this is biblical theology. He brought up is so important because. Different authors of the New Testament, I'm a New Testament professor, so I'm going to stick with the New Testament here in this conversation. Um, They're going to use words that are interchangeable with someone else's words. For example, in in, uh, John, you don't see kingdom of God language. Uh, You see eternal life. 
you know, that seems to be a, an aspect that he would use and emphasize eternal life, perhaps being interchangeable in some sense. Paul will use repentance where John doesn't, you know, and other gospel writers don't. Um, what I'm thinking of is in first uh, or in the letter First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, he talks about you have repented from, you've turned from idols to serve the living God. And there's this idea that, and it's not on their own, God has given them the grace to do that, to be given the idea to do it. So the free grace side is an error when they whole cloth describe every lordship advocate. I hate using these titles because that in itself is confusing. Free grace? Who doesn't believe grace is free? Yes. It's a, it, yeah, and who doesn't believe Jesus is Lord? Exactly. Yeah. No, and the free gracers will always say, of course, Jesus is Lord. It's right there in Romans 10 to confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord. No one's saying that's not it. And none of the lordship guys are saying that grace isn't free. So these are, these are so unhelpful terms. Um, but Paul does interchangeably use faith and repentance in, di- in several places. He seems to see them as sort of the same concept, two sides of the same coin. One thing that I think would be helpful, uh, the major thing, bring the whole crux comes on repentance being a work or not, that, um, that we understand that repentance is a gift, yeah. right? It's one of God's graces. You, no one can just repent on their own strength and then believe in Jesus Christ. Um, it is all in one. Nobody is walking around repentant without also having faith in Christ. And nobody's walking around with faith in Jesus to be saved and is, hasn't repented from their old life, even if they don't know the words. It's okay. I mean, you, the, the concept of what matters here. Everybody who's repentant is believing. A, a Christian repentance is believing in Christ, and everybody who's truly believing in Christ has, is repenting, has repented in some sense. You can't divorce the two, as Ryan said. This idea comes when there's loose language, uh, there's loose from more of the, the lordship guys sometimes where it's a two-step process and the free grace guys put a hook right there. Look at that. Right in between the repentance and faith. How can that be? You, you're, you, you can't, you know, you're putting a, a thing right between faith that repentance comes first when it needs to be bridged. And biblical theology helps us do that because we're able to go outside of John where free gracers will only stick with John. We're going to say, what does the whole New Testament canon say on the idea? And it's overwhelming that repentance is, is, is required, it's expected, and it's not divorced from faith. Paul even uses it almost interchangeably. Yeah, I, and to add to this as well is that repentance is something that not only we do as an entrance into salvation, but it is also our lifestyle. Martin Luther said in his 95 Theses, and he probably wasn't converted when he wrote that, but I think his observation was correct, that our whole life is a life of repentance. Um, we see this particularly in the seven letters to the church, or the churches to the the letters to the seven churches in Revelation two and three. Uh, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, "Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent." Well, lampstand is a reference to their church; they're shining bright. So he's calling Christians here to repentance. So as Christians, we repent. I think pastorally, um, I have encountered so many people that have heard the gospel. Uh, God has created them. God is holy. Mankind is sinful. Because God is holy, he must judge sin and sinners. But God so loved the world that he sent his son to die. Um, But what's often missing in a gospel presentation is how do I respond to that? And we say to people, you have to believe. And they say, well, I believe, but they never experience a change of life because they're just thinking about a mental agreement with the information that was transmitted. And then because of uh, Charles Finney, uh, the response becomes the anxious bench, which turns into the modern day altar call. And the idea is, well, I prayed a prayer and I walked down an altar, so therefore I'm saved. But people didn't actually repent. I cannot tell you how many times when I preach the gospel or talk to people. People have come up to me and said, the Lord saved me, but it, I realized I was missing something. And I'll say, well, what were you missing? And they say, I believed all that stuff before, but I've never repented. And so uh, I think from a pastoral perspective, from an evangelistic perspective, we have to preach repentance because it, it, as we've said already, it's two sides of the same coin. It helps us understand faith. Faith, biblical faith, saving faith is trusting in what Jesus did. But if you're unwilling to let go 
of the things of this world and your own sin, how can you actually say you're trusting Jesus? Repentance helps us understand faith. It does not work against at all the concept of that salvation is by faith alone. You talked about mental assent, and there are some who contend, well, you you can have two levels of Christianity. Those, you know, uh, uh, sort of the bottom rung Christians who just have, you know, mentally assent, and then there are disciples. Well, that's a whole other category of Christian. Can you speak to that and define that? Yeah, I think it, I can't remember in Acts where, but it says that the, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. There is no distinction between a Christian and a disciple. I, I had this crisis of when I was a young believer because I was studying the book of Acts and I read that and I thought, wait a minute, or I'm sorry, I was reading the gospels and I realized that there's this group of people called disciples. And then I'd go through the epistles and these disciples would, would do things, I'm sorry, in the gospels, like pick up your cross and deny yourself. And hate. And I'd, and I'd ask myself, is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? Because I'm not really sure I'm doing all that stuff a disciple's doing. But then I realized Acts says that they're synonymous terms. Uh, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Um, so no, there is no difference, but there are traditions, Christian traditions, that do believe in uh, two separate experiences of salvation. One is a salvation where you just mentally agree, and then later on you uh, have this experience of sanctification whereby you repent and you grow in your faith. They've separated out sanctification and justification. Theologically speaking, they, they happen at the exact same time. We are sanctified. God sets us apart the moment he justifies us. But there also is that word sanctification is used to refer to progressive sanctification where God is continually working in us through his word by his spirit to mature us and separate us from sin and, and from worldliness. There may be a, a just not uh, just to push back a little bit, there, there seems to be historically there is a distinction between I would say there is a case to be made between disciples and Christians. That's an excellent text to go to. So Christians at Antioch, were the, you know, were, the disciples were there called Christians. And there's a, there's a turning, turning point in the language at that point. But historically, disciples were always pupils or students of a master there physically. You know, and, they, and, they, and you see that throughout the Gospels, why Jesus was the, the 12 disciples. They were where, there with Jesus in the flesh. Anybody who was a disciple of a rabbi, they were going to them in the flesh. They were they were they were their students. Um, and then with Paul's language, though, this goes back to the biblical theological argument to be now what are the, how does the other parts of the canon other authors speak into this? He doesn't use disciples regarding Christians. His favorite word is saints. Mm-hmm. Now Christians are saints. Um, so there is something. There's I wouldn't say that a dis, this disjunctive. It's either disciple or Christian, but there is a distinction there historically with disciples were there with their their master in the flesh theologically they're still followers of that person they're they're following of their they're learning from um but it is interesting that in in as the new testament plays out there's no longer the disciples the disciples are are generally referred to as those 12 and the rest are saints or perhaps even followers um yeah and cr- I'm, christian was a term of derision given to followers right it's Jesus. only used three times yeah, the whole so- whole New Testament. Yeah, in the New Testament, the primary word is saint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that that Ryan, we're talking about the the repentance thing. It's funny because free grace advocates are going to put such stock, as I said earlier, on the gospel of John, not using the word repentance. However, that same apostle John also wrote Revelation. And every, (laughs) to every church, just about, I think it's every church, but maybe two, possibly all, all, all seven of them, he calls to repent. Unless you repent, you know, I will, uh, you know, uh, Ex- uh, uh, so distinguish, uh, extinguish the light, or, or, or I will, you know, whatever. It, it's there's there's a there's a call the to repentance. Yeah, remove my lampstand. Right, exactly. Well, well some might argue the uh, so that's the Church of Ephesus, and I had to work through this myself. But to the Church of Thyatira, um, speaking particularly of the woman Jezebel, um, metaphorically calling her, who calls herself a prophetess. This is in uh, uh, Revelation two twenty. Um, but I gave. I have this against you, tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. 
that description of this woman that is referred metaphorically to Jezebel, um, she's clearly described as an unbeliever. So even from John, he seems to apply repentance to believers in Ephesus. And then this other category, this woman who has attached herself to the church, but leading uh, the believers astray. So so because the free grace guys might say, well, hey, those it, Jesus, John said that because they're telling the Christians, they were already Christians right. to repent. But here, later on, he's telling other Christians or telling non-Christians to repent. Yeah, so, they, and they would probably say that, unlike John, Revelation does not have its explicit purpose to believe in Christ. So that's why they would pinpoint John as the how do they, salvation, not Revelation. But how do they address First John? Where you just see example after example after example, you know, you know, you say you're this, but you don't do this, you know, because clearly there's the fruit of repentance is there. Yeah, and about. that's why we would. D. A. Carson was helpful in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, several a few decades ago, and everybody reading that's a little book showing all these fallacies we make with the Greek text, and we do, and even logical fallacies we do when we preach when we teach, we don't even think about it. And everybody who was a preacher or teacher read that going, oh, wow, I've committed these fallacies at some point or another. One of them was a word concept fallacy. The idea that it is fallacious to say that unless the word is there, the concept's not there either. And the concept of repentance is clear. Even through the Gospel of John, the word doesn't have to be there. I have my text open in John chapter 12. I even say he, I would say this is an actual clear case, even though the word repentance isn't there, but he's, he's quoting Isaiah. And he says in John 12, 40, quoting Isaiah, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and turn for me to heal them. That is repentance right there. It's a different word being used, but the idea, the concept is there, a turning, right? So re- repentance at its, key, at its key core, yes, is a change of thinking, a change of mind. That's actually what the Greek word metanoia means. But as a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior as well. You can't have a change of thinking without your behavior following suit. Um, it, it's, it's both and. Um, so, yeah, and in 1 John, the idea is, uh, is very clear that there's this sense of these false teachers there, these proto-Gnostics, we may even call them. And, Jesus, and John's making it very clear, like sort of these ideas of what makes a true believer. But he's not calling repentance, and that's what the free grace I would say. He's, even there, he's not calling them to repentance. But he's describing, obviously, this is those causing schisms. Those are, these are antichrists saying that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh. Um, if, you're still in, if you're living in sin, you know, John chapter 3, you know, those are children of God do not sin, meaning habitually. You know, it's, it's this very clear. The concept of is do not be this, be this. Therefore, that requires a turning. Um, so yeah, this is a this is a hotbed issue because the the it gets down to are we taking the word lexically alone or lexically and theologically? And it has to be both. Because if it's lexically, yes, if we're sticking just to the word, saying that the word repentance means a change of thinking, that's what it means. But it's always a change theologically change of thinking that led to a change of behavior. Can't have one without the other. Great right. point. Huh. And also, um, it goes to another point where people say, is there such a thing, though, as a carnal Christian? They say, there are carnal Christians. Yes, you I got be two a- of them on this table right here with me. <laughs> Corey <laughs> makes four. Oh, and it's a C, too. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead. Uh, to answer your question, um, uh, in the sense of do Christians sin? Yes. Um, do we continue in sin. So it depends what you, how you define carnal Christian. I, I'm not a big fan of that term. Paul says in Galatians, I say walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Well, the, the verb carry out is in the active voice. It's continual and ongoing, it seems to be. Um, in John, John says that that um, uh, those who are in Christ do not practice sin. So First John three is for, what I was yep. referring to. Yeah. So I I think that there's this idea that there is no such thing as a Christian that lives in in habitual unrepentant who just wallows in it, lives in it. That's what they do. Um, they don't constantly carry it out, practice it like a martial art, like they're training in it and getting better in it. 
do we sin? Yes. But when we're born again, when the Spirit of God is inside us and we truly have placed our faith in Christ and repented of our sin, we hate our sin. And we don't, while we don't, we don't love to be in it. We don't stay in it. So are we carnal as Christians in the sense that do we sin? Yeah. Do we sometimes sow to the flesh? Yeah. And, and not walk in the Spirit as we're supposed to? Yeah. Do we always walk in the Spirit? No. Um, so, no, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian if that means you think you can be a Christian and, um, and you're not under, to use the terminology, the Lordship of Christ, uh, you're not saved. Um, but if you're a Christian and you're struggling with sin, that doesn't mean you're not saved. You're just a normal Christian. And that is not going to be removed from us until glory. Yeah, that, that's so good. I'm thinking of uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans is, is so amazing in, in different ways, but Paul has this method of teaching through diatribe. The, uh, that is that he's, he's imagining an interlocutor in, his mind, uh, interlocutor in his mind. So he asks questions that he's thinking his audience would ask. It's almost like he's pinned, like good teachers do that. You think of, and preachers, you think of somebody in your church or congregation that might need to hear this or whatever, and you're anticipating their objection, so you answer it in your message before they can object. And he does that in Romans 6. And this was, this particular text, Romans 6, was instrumental in my own salvation because I saw myself as believing like this, which was wrong. In fact, Paul's going to say, by no means, very strong in the Greek. He says in Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he, he answers immediately, meganoita. It's the strongest way to express abhorrence in the Greek. By no means. May it never be. And he gives a reason why. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We've been baptized into his death? It does not mean, to Ryan's point, that Christians don't sin. Of course we do. No one, if you really understand the gospel, how can you continue to live in it and celebrate it? Right? Knowing that your sin put your Savior on the cross. And that's Paul's thing, point here. May it, may it never be. Do we continue to sin because this idea that grace covers us all, so we use grace as a license now? We've turned liberty into a license. And he, he condemned that right off the bat right here. I remember reading that when I was just around the, the, the cusp of getting saved. Maybe I just got saved or almost about, and I was just starting to read in the Bible, and I got to that, and I was like, that's my life, because that's how I used to think. My parents are Christians, and I'm riding the coattails of their faith. I'm thinking, well, as long as I just mentally believe in Jesus Christ, died for my, my sins, and I'm good to go for the rest of my life. And my life looked nothing like a New Testament believer's life, other than the, maybe the, the, sin, the sinners in Corinth or something like that, as close as maybe it came to, which is not a good example. You know, I came to Romans 6.1. I'm like, wow, that's me, using grace as a license to sin. And Paul's clear, may it never be. If you truly understand Christ died for your sins, how can you continue to revel and celebrate the very thing that put your Savior on the cross? Amen. Is there a line between backsliding and apostasy? Or, well, let's just go with disbelief. Is there a line? Because so many... Uh, you know, pastors, you know, will use this term of, you know, they're rededicating their life to Christ, that they were backsliding and rededicating. I mean, is there a line between uh, that can be seen or, or defined or? Yeah, I, I, I don't like non-canonical language, meaning language that's not in the Bible, to talk about our experience of where what we are or are not doing as Christians. So I don't like the idea of saying that there's a such thing as a backslidden Christian. Um, are there Christians that are in unrepentant sin for long periods of time? Yes. We see many examples of that in Scripture. Chief among them would be David when he sinned with Bathsheba. I mean, well, David's not a Christian, but in a technical sense. But a believer. Yeah. He was a believer, and as and he lived in that sin with what he did with Uriah and Bathsheba for months and months and months. Um so yes, there, there's a category of, if you want to define backsliding as someone who's in sin, um, I think that that language is, does more harm than it does good because it sends the message that you've remained in a state of, of grace, salvific grace, but you were living the way that you were living. And then so what people do is they say, if you're a backslidden Christian and you want to rededicate your life to Christ, come forward an altar call. And then their whole life becomes coming forward at altar calls or getting baptized 30,000 times. And what they're really revealing is they have a, they have a misunderstanding of the grace of God. Um, 
God's grace, when it is poured out on a person, we have all of it. Um, we are completely justified. We're always justified. Um, do we uh, harm our fellowship with God when we sin? Certainly we do. Um, but we don't, we don't go away from Christ and then come back to Christ. If we're in Christ, we're always with Christ, and we will forever be with Christ. The other reason I don't like that language is not only because it's non-canonical, but and it's confusing, but the other reason is it's emphasizing the person's work as it relates to their standing with God rather than the work of Christ. Um, if, you, if your language constantly to people in the church is, are you backslidden, you're, you're reinforcing this idea that their salvation is ultimately rooted in something that they did rather than ultimately rooted in Christ's finished work. And when people understand that, they, don't, they know they're in sin, but they don't need to come back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because it's Christ who holds them. It's not their own ability to keep themselves in Christ that holds them. So, yeah, I, I really don't like that language. I think the biblical language is apostasy. That word is in the Bible. And an apostate is someone who makes a profession and then walks away. We need to be careful about calling people that are in sin apostates because an apostate is someone who walks away for good. Um, but I think we need to constantly warn people against apostasy as the New Testament does. Um, so that would be my two cents on that question. Corey, you have anything to add? No, that, that, very good. I, I'm in total agreement. Maybe this goes into another a future question. Uh, if you're going to ask Chris, I'm not too sure, but the idea of works and where it places in salvation. Well, go ahead. Yeah, because yeah, okay. that, that is kind of the next. That's a great yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Because what Ryan well, can, said— what, ask the, What's the question, just for clarity? Well, again, um, how, how does uh, progressive theology view good works? How does lordship salvation— Yeah, well, so for Ryan brought up, when you emphasize backsliding, the emphasis immediately is taken off of Christ and, and put on your work or lack thereof or whatever evil work you're doing. Um, unfortunately, and here's the, here's the bridge why I would go into this question here, lordship al uh, advocates perhaps, not all of them, but some of them do, they put a big emphasis on works because rightly so, they're going to appeal to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, you know, where the free grace guy is going to start uh, 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 love verses 8 and 9, that as far by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your doing. It's a gift of God, not of any works, lest man should boast, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, the Lordship's going to say, okay, well, for we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It, these camps are so unhelpful because Paul teaches both a faith in Christ alone, and a good works that follows. The free grace guy is generally going to look at the lordship guy and say, yeah, but the way you emphasize it, you put the works on the other side because now you're telling people to look at their works to prove if that they are a Christian. Because you emphasize Ephesians 2.10 to the exclusion of 8 and 9, you are by default, we as human sinners do it all the time, every false religion proves it, trying to do something to please their deity. We're always going to look at ourselves and our, and our lives and our works to, to, to try to prove to someone, whether it's to us or to prove to someone around us, that we're truly saved. When you're doing that, your eyes are off the cross and the work of Christ, right? So lordship advocates generally will, will emphasize sanctification, perhaps maybe to the exclusion of grace that's saved, because they're looking at always at works to, so the characterization would go, you're looking at works to prove that you really are saved. And if you don't have these works, then you didn't really truly repent and believe. And then before you know it, you got a bunch of Christians totally paranoid that they don't have salvation yeah. or fruit inspectors. You know? But then on the flip side, is it, can you have both? Can you, can you have what Paul says here? Understand that grace is a gift from God. I would even go so far as to say that he's including faith as the gift from God as well. The entire thing is from God, yeah. therefore should result in works. Those works are on the back end, not on the front end. Um, and the Lordship or the free grace guy is going to say too often the Lordship guys put the, the in, in, in creed, in confession, they're, they're understanding the works go at the end, but in practice, they're making that the main thing. The point is, just like whether you're backslid or not, I don't like that language either, if we're focusing on our own works, guess where our focus is not? On Christ yeah. and his Amen. work. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. I think, I think our works do prove, like Corey said, using language, they're on the back end. They do prove that God's work in our life. 
Um, John, First John makes that abundantly clear. Uh, true, as believers, we bear fruit. But I think Corey also makes a, an outstanding point that we have to make sure that we're emphasizing that the assurance of our salvation is rooted in the work of Christ. It's not rooted in what we're doing for the very reason Corey just said. I know I'm saying the same thing Corey just said, but I, I just I think it's such an important point because I know people in our church that when I give up and I give a sermon and I talk about the need to see fruits in your life, people inevitably come up and, and say, oh my gosh. Everybody's doubting their salvation. Everybody's doubting yeah. their salvation. And so you, you have to ultimately root your salvation in what Christ has done and not in our works. Um, but we, but nonetheless, Scripture is clear. If you are in Christ, there will be fruit in your life. So then how can a person be assured of their salvation if not from an experience from their past? You know, they, they walked an aisle or they, you know, went to the altar. How can they be assured of their salvation? Um, I, I, I would say, um, I, I would just offer right off the top of my head um, four four things. Uh, we've already covered two of them. Number one is... You have four bullet points off the top of your head? <laughs> yeah, really? I really do. I didn't write this down. <laughs> um, uh, I bet it's going to sound a lot like a sermon we've heard. Let's hear it. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, the first one is what we've already talked about, is that what gives us assurance is not in what we have done. It's in what Christ has done. The assurance of our salvation will flow from a robust... Um, understanding of what of of what Christ has done for us to save us. Second, um, the assurance of salvation also flows from uh, obedience. Jesus says, "You know, why do you say you love me and you don't do what I say?" Our obedience to Christ demonstrates the fact that we really love Him. Uh, so, I would say a robust understanding of what Christ has done on the cross. Second, obedience to Jesus Christ. Third, I would say evangelistic fruit. In the parable of the sowers in Mark, uh, the parable of the sower, it's that some bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100, talking about the heart that has received the gospel. Um, and I do think that fruit is not a reference to uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I think it's a, a, a reference to evangelistic fruit. So again, just to recap, uh, a robust understanding of what Christ has done at the cross, obedience to Jesus Christ, evangelistic fruit, and then I would say fourth, holiness. But I would just particularly define holiness as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. When we, those four things as they mix together at the top being the finished work of Christ uh, result in, in a robust confidence that what Christ has done uh, applies to me. That's what I would say off the top of my head. Now, yeah. it, but I want to be careful and maybe this is a caveat too. I, uh, I, I don't want to. Um, the assurance of salvation is not explicitly promised. S the subjective assurance of salvation, meaning how you subjectively feel about the objective reality, Scripture says is done. And we need to believe that objective reality. But those three things, or those four things, help us with the subjective part of, hey, if you're someone who's struggling with, hey, am I really saved? Ask yourself those four questions, and that might help you work through whether or not you're really in Christ. Yeah. Um, you know, this is where John is helpful, his writings, because he, he, he does have a penchant for giving clear purpose statements while he's writing. And on Ryan's point right there, it's not something guaranteed, the assurance of faith, but it is a perk, if I can use that word, of being a Christian, where it's actually... That's a good word. I like yeah, that. I'd like to yeah. use a I mean, low rung on the, on the ladder there. It's called a perk of being a Christian. He wants us to have assurance, because John tells us in 1 John 5, 13, I believe it is, he gives us a, an actual purpose statement why he wrote 1 John, the first letter of John, that these things were written to you who believe. So it's written to Christians, so that, there's the purpose clause, the purpose of you, have, you may know you have eternal life. Mm. And so clearly, 1 John was written for the very purpose for Christians to read it. They're already believers in Christ that they have eternal life. Our Roman Catholic friends would call that a sin of presumption. We would say it's actually in the text. Yep. He wants us to have, but it's not guaranteed because it's very subjective, right? Assurance is not, is not an essential of salvation. It's a wonderful perk. We should have assurance. Mm -hmm. um, but you can, be, you can doubt your salvation and still be saved yes. and still have eternal life. Right, um, so I like I like John's case there that assurance should come on the idea. How do you know you're saved? You should have this assurance, 
But assurance based on what? A true faith in Christ. And going back to John's purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31, which a lot of free grace advocates will hang their hat on, but lordship guys should too. It says in verse 20, verse 31, uh, that these things were written so that you believe in that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. Well, that verb for believing in the Greek text is very interesting. There's a big debate on this because there's manuscript evidence going both ways. The, word, the Greek word for pistuo, which is to believe, it can be either an aorist. They're both subjective, subjunctives. It is an aorist subjunctive, meaning that you come to believe one time. So this is written to non-believers. Though you come to believe one time so that Jesus is the Christ and that you're saved. You have eternal life. Or is it a present subjunctive? So the, the debate is, is it aorist or, or present? Is it past, come to a one-time uh, faith in Christ or a continuing faith in Christ present? There's manuscript evidence going both ways. And if, if you have a Greek text, I'm looking at my Nesli Lawn 27, they generally have it in brackets. It's pistuete or pistuacete. That sigma, that S, makes the difference. Is this an aorist, uh, meaning you come to believe one Christ, uh, that Jesus is the Christ and you have eternal life, it's written to non-believers, or is it a present, you continue to believe? John, and, there, and it goes both ways, and I think both are intended because you can see that elsewhere in, in the gospel. But if anything, the emphasis is on a continuing to believe. It's always a verb, never a noun in John. Very interesting. So for John, it's an active belief constantly. So the assurance of salvation, there is something to be said, as the Lordship advocates do and Calvinists do, that your works should demonstrate your belief and what you believe. I mean, everybody understands that in any type of life. How yeah. you live demonstrates what you believe, right? But if you put too much emphasis on those works, if I'm looking at my works and I'm not looking at Christ, I'm going to start doubting my salvation because there's nothing. Even my best works are filthy rags, right? Yeah. However, the assurance of faith, I think, according to John, is that am I continuing to believe? Am I genuinely continuing in this moment, right now, believing in Jesus Christ? Mm. If I am, the assurance should flow from that. Well, the, does that speak to the perseverance of the saints as well, that idea? Well, that you're, you're opening up a whole can of worms sorry. here. Because, <laughs> I'm sorry. because the debate comes on, is it perseverance or preservation? Because if we're going to say perseverance, the idea comes back on man persevering which would be the critique against that idea of the P of tulip. If we're talking about preservation, that's God's perspe perspective, preserver, God's viewpoint, preserving himself. Those are, and, and there's, a, there, there's, there's, an, there's an essence to both that are, that are true. Um, it has to be God doing it to preserve his people, preserve his people, and doing so, the believer perseveres. But persevering is never in one's own strength, and it's not never having challenges. It's actually going through challenges in life. And in yeah. those seasons, you have dry seasons. You're bearing more fruit than other seasons. And it can, can it include doubting and, and, and falling into sin at times and all that? Yeah, uh, that's the Christian life. Paul says in Romans 7, it's something he dealt with. I think that's an, a proper interpretation of Romans 7, that the very evil he doesn't want to do, he does. And the good he wants to do, he can't. Yeah. This is the war the believer deals with, a regenerated soul and a depraved state happening at the same time. It's the war of the believer. We have that tension always. That's why instead of looking at our works or fruit, to be fruit inspectors, to prove we're saved— I fall on John's emphasis on faith. Am I continuing to believe in this moment? And if I am, my behavior should demonstrate that. But at the end of the day, am I believing in Jesus and what he did and who he is? He is the Christ, the Son of God. I have eternal life. Boom. I'm, I'm assured of that salvation right there. Yeah, and I think in 1 John, John then elaborates on, on what it means to continual belief. If you just walk through 1 John, he says in 1 John 1, 5 through 7, that those who uh, have eternal life, they walk in the light. In 1 John 1, 8 through 10, they confess sin. Um, they keep his commandments in 2, verses 3 through 6, uh, meaning the commandments of Christ, not the Mosaic commandments. They have a love for Christians. That's all throughout 1 John. Um, they don't love the world or we don't love the world uh, when we are uh, presently have faith, so to speak. We remain in the church. We confess that Jesus is the Christ. We practice righteousness. We purify self. The whole book of First John is an is the book that you need to camp in if you're struggling with uh, whether or not you're saved and whether or not you're truly believing who Jesus is. Yes, because there were those that First John was written to or written about saying that they denied that Jesus came in the flesh. Yes. So, so to have a true proper proper belief of who Jesus is, going back to John 20, who also wrote First John, if you truly believe who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, and eternal life is in Him. That's the, that should result in the assurance because you believe who Christ has really saved me. 
And therefore, my life is going to reflect that. Yeah. Not perfectly, but it starts with that faith in what, who Christ is and his personhood and what he's done. And this whole debate of free grace versus lordship salvation, you know, for the average Christian, you know, does this even have any real consequence? I mean, you know, <laughs> does it even up? They would say, well, how does this apply even to me? You know, I think it has real consequence for what I said earlier is I think that when you preach a gospel devoid of repentance— um, you're actually not helping people come to Christ. Um, that repentance is how someone... So you, you, you talk about all the glories of what Christ has done to save us. You talk about who God is. You talk about the reality of our sinfulness. Um, you talk about um, every component of the gospel as you're witnessing to somebody, but you leave out how do they respond. That's a key component. If someone says to you, what must I do to be saved? The answer is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, it is interesting because it always comes down to this, where is repentance? Is it required for salvation? Ryan and I are in agreement. It is. But it's not required as a separate step. Yes. True saving faith is a repentant faith. We gotta, um, If you truly believe, again, John 98 times uses the verb to believe. Never to repent, but to believe. It's an action, and it's it's a mental action. It's not just a mental assent. It is I'm I'm changing everything about my life in this belief, right? Paul says, I mean, here's the thing. It's like we're not when he gives the gospel so clearly in one passage. If we had to systematically break it down point by point, First Corinthians 15, Paul says, "I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried." That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, and he goes on. Nowhere does he say what to do with that message. He doesn't say, here's the gospel, now repent. He's just giving it out, right? So that is the gospel message. The response should be, it should be obvious then to believe in that, my life is going to change. Yeah. Even if I don't understand the whole thing of Christ being my Lord at that moment, it is okay. I need to just repent my thinking, believe in Jesus, who he really is. That's the change of thinking. And, and when I do that, I think as I continue to grow who Christ is, my life is going to reflect that. Yeah, maybe a good way to say it is we're not advocating for perfect repentance uh, or complete repentance. Complete, it needs to be in every action of your life, but it doesn't mean you're not going to be perfect in that and then come to Jesus. And I think that's where the free gracers give the Lordship guys a hard time, and I think it's wrong, is that, or they would say that, hey, you're emphasizing too much, as, as it's already been stated, that you need to be work to save yourself so you somehow have enough perfection or obedience to be good. So I like how Corey keeps emphasizing, I've not heard him say that before, but I like how he keeps, uh, uh, it's it's the same. How serious is this? It is serious. However, it is an in-house debate. It, does it have implications elsewhere? Yes. But if we truly believe God is sovereign in saving those, he saves people despite our bad presentations of the gospel. Amen. Thank God it's not based on the buzzwords we say. Yeah. I would never go on the street, which we've done, and Chris, you've been with me. We do cult, we do evangelism on the street, right? I never have these discussions. You know, for free, let me explain to you free grace versus lordship salvation to a guy on the street when I have three seconds to talk to him about the gospel. You know, I'm sticking to, you know, believe in Jesus Christ, who he is, because I know if he truly believes that, it's going to be a repentant because, belief. Yeah, because repentance is granted. Yeah, like, exactly. It, it's a, it's a gift, it's just a like gift. faith is, right? Yeah. Exactly. It comes in the same package. Yeah. All glory to God. It it starts with him and it, be, and it ends with him. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. Well, thank you, gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in.